I'm Glenn Gass, and that's the coolest song ever recorded. (laughs) And I want to welcome you to Profiles, a program brought to you from WFIU, where we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona, uh, both from Bloomington and luminaries from, as in this case, around the world. Today's guest, Booker T. Jones, is synonymous with soul music, the leader of the greatest soul band in history, uh, winner of four... Grammy Awards, including a Lifetime Grammy, member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, familiar with the White House, <laughs> playing, mm-hmm. playing there. What I don't know if we'll get to what he hasn't done, maybe it would take less time, but uh, it's a great honor to have him here, especially on the occasion of his receiving an honorary doctorate from Indiana University So and being the commencement speaker. And so welcome, Booker T. Jones. Dr. Jones, I'm sorry. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. Well, it's, it's our pleasure, and it's been a... Uh, a personal dream, not just of mine, but of an awful lot of people who know that you are an IU alum, mm-hmm. and uh, you've mentioned it often and kindly in your interviews over the years. And I appreciate that. I, it seems like a good place to start listing your awards. I know you've won so many others. Is this just one more once you get to that stage, or is this something special well, to you? I, I feel that uh, this award is so important to me personally that it's a turning point in my life because uh, coming to Indiana was a, a big personal triumph for me to get here. As a kid from Memphis was a big struggle. I had saved money for months and weeks for the tuition and it was so important for me to come here for my own musical development uh, and not only that uh, it was my first home away from home and uh, this particular homecoming is just especially important for me. I can't imagine that any award that I have won in the past or in the future, to be honest with you, could be uh, could mean more to me. Oh, well, that's wonderful for all of us at Indiana University to hear, mm-hmm. to play a small part in your remarkable career is an honor for us. Uh, I know from your speech and from reading about you that your family values education and has for quite some time. In fact, you'd spoke at the commencement about how your grandfather built with his own hands a, a schoolhouse and educated the... That was, in, uh, that was in Red Banks, Mississippi, and um, it's, it's, it's Jones Road down there, and um, he um, came up with the funds and the labor and uh, turned out uh, generations of um, people who value education, people who went to uh, Russ College, MI College, and, of course, his school. My father graduated MI, and uh, they uh, they just uh, valued uh, developing the mind and uh, realized the uh, benefits to be derived from that and uh, instilled it in their children, and I was one of them. Mm-hmm. And how did the road lead to Memphis from Mississippi? You, you said uh, that he was the only uh, former sharecropper that owned land in the county where he 
Yes, that was that was quite a system to work yourself out of uh, the sharecropping system in those days down there. But my father, uh, with his degree, became a teacher in Memphis, Tennessee, and moved his family to Memphis. And I was born in Memphis, so I wasn't actually born in Mississippi. And I got to go to Booker T. Washington High School, which was a big privilege. And the teachers there were just very conscientious. Uh, I had uh, I actually uh, studied Latin when I was in ninth grade and uh, typing when I was in 10th grade, and uh, music from uh, grade 4. I had access to an oboe and a clarinet when I was in 4th grade. So I just got a, an extensive uh, education there in, in the Memphis City school system. I know you're a multi-instrumentalist, uh, as they say, most famous for that great organ sound that you own. Uh-huh. But yeah, you. you play so many other instruments. Uh, mm-hmm. How early on were you aware that music was something that came very naturally and might even be a, a life's course for you? Well, uh, the curiosity just stayed with me. I got a drum when I was a very little boy, and I, I bought a ukulele at a five and dime on Main Street in Memphis. But when I got to the the uh, Porter Junior High School band room, I was able to lay my hands on the oboe, and, on, uh, and I, I was able to uh, make my own reeds for that. And, and, and figure out how to wrap them. And uh, had great instruction there as far as to the embouchure, which is how you uh, hold your, your cheeks and your jaws to play it. And I gained entry into the uh, junior high school band when I was in fourth grade, which was an incredible thing that wasn't supposed to happen because it was against all the rules. The, the, youngest, uh, the youngest member should have been in the seventh grade. And so there I was with a uniform that was too big for me and the cap falling over my head, but I was so happy to be sitting in the oboe chair, mainly because all the other chairs were, were taken and nobody wanted to play oboe. And nobody ever wants to play oboe, do they? <laughs> no, 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 no. And I noticed the commencement band here had two oboe players. But I had access to the brass instruments there, the trombone, the baritone horn, the tuba, and I had access to the saxophones. So after school, I could just walk in there and pick one up and just sort of give myself a little lesson on it. <laughs> so you must have realized it, it came more naturally to you than to other kids who had to struggle to well, that was create what sounds. I, and... I was always late leaving school because of that. Mm-hmm. So I was, I guess, what you could say obsessed with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, how did this road lead to uh, satellite or stacks? Well, I, my father bought a, a clarinet for me, like I said, when I was in uh, fourth grade, and we had to pay for that, which was quite a a challenge uh, for a high school math teacher. So I got a paper route, mm-hmm. and on the paper route, I had to start uh, just selling papers on the corner because I, I, I didn't have a, um, a route. And when I finally obtained a route, it was a small route with very few customers, and I had to do what they call soliciting. I had to ride around and try to find new customers. And on, the, on my bicycle and uh, uh, searching for new areas to expand my paper route, I rode uh, a little bit further on Macklemore Avenue than I normally would and noticed a store uh, that was a record store. It turned out to be Satellite Records. And I parked the bike, stopped soliciting, and walked in there, and I saw these albums on the shelves and uh, everything from... Uh, Hank Williams to Ray Charles to uh, the Jazz Messengers. And, oh, so then that, that became a place where I spent a lot of time. And 
the clerk was a very personable, friendly guy uh, who just allowed me to play, put the records on the turntable and just stand there and listen uh, for sometimes hours. He just let me do that. And his name was Steve Cropper. I didn't know I was going to have a future with him in the, in, later, but uh, he, he just did that day after day. So I, learned to, I got to listen to a lot of music without buying it. And then how did you make the shift the few yards over to the studio? Uh, that was... They were all in the same building, is that correct? So close, but so couldn't, far. Couldn't, couldn't, I would hear musicians uh, through the curtain. It was, a, it, was a, it was an old theater, and, and the, um, the record store was basically in the lobby of the theater. And I could hear music coming through the curtain and behind the door, uh, but I couldn't just walk in there and, and you know, listen. Or, but that was a fortuitous event in that my friend David Porter knew that I had been practicing all these instruments. And he was the type of guy that could talk himself into any place. And David was involved with Satellite Records recording studio. And uh, he had uh, known that Rufus and Carla Thomas wanted a horn on their on their song one morning. And uh, David came from Satellite to Booker, Washington, and got a hall pass and got me out of an algebra class and said, Booker, just come, you know, and told the teacher that, uh, gave her some excuse that I was needed somewhere in the band room or whatever with his hall pass. Took me down to the band room, and uh, we picked up a baritone sax and uh, got a mouthpiece and some reeds, and he borrowed the uh, car of the band director's car, Dr. Mr. Walter Martin, and drove me speedily to <laughs> Stax Records. And walked me through the door that I wanted to walk through for years and couldn't walk through. But with my baritone sax, I got through there, opened up the horn, and listened to the uh, listened to the rehearsal a little bit, and I came up with this little line. It was, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And I, I started playing that line, and then the band would fall in, and that became the, uh, the track for the song. And uh, we recorded that song with Rufus and Carla Thomas called Cause I Love You. I told them after that session uh, that I I knew how to play piano. And uh, the song became a regional hit, and uh, they called me back to play uh, piano on some other songs. And they somehow migrated to organ. <laughs> well, they knew that I, I had, had begun to play uh, sessions as a piano player after mm-hmm. school. And this was... Uh, this was actually much better than the paper route because uh, I was making six or seven dollars a day as a as a session player. But this one particular artist, William Bell, had written a song called "You Don't Miss Your Water mm-hmm. Till Your Well Runs Dry," and he had the idea. He and Jim Stewart had the idea of maybe having an organ to sort of uh, emulate the melancholy feeling of it, and uh, they had me sit down at uh, a Hammond M3 organ and put a microphone in the bathroom with a lot of echo on it, and I started to answer William on this little organ. And that was the first time I played uh, a Hammond M3 organ uh, in the studio. Nice. Mm-hmm. And then Green Onions came about as almost an aside, as I Green Onions recall. was a couple of years later. It was something that I had uh, been playing around on piano uh, the the riff for it, and um, that turned out to be a session that uh, was um, aborted for some reason. I'm not sure why the artist didn't 
complete his session. But we were there for the for the uh, backup band for an artist, and we had free time on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, to make use of that time, sitting there with with Cropper and uh, Steinberg and Jackson, uh, just started playing this piano riff on the organ, and it sounded pretty good on the mm-hmm. organ. And um, that turned out to be Green Onions. <laughs> Green Onions. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one R&B hit, number three pop hit, mm-hmm. 1962, and you're in high school. It's uh, astonishing. And Booker T and the MGs. I love that you're named Booker T because <laughs> you can't say that without people going, Booker T and the MGs? <laughs> and they can't say that without going, Green Onions? Uh, and I love yeah. that you still love that song. Well, that's uh, one of my favorite songs. Uh, b- before we uh, go any further, I want to get some... Sounds in the listeners' ears, those that might not uh, know offhand by title, but will recognize, I'm sure, these melodies uh, of some of your instrumental hits with Booker T and the MGs. have to go back to Green Onions. As uh-huh. I mentioned to you, that was uh, my wife and I chose that as our wedding recessional. Uh, oh, I pronounce you man and wife, and that comes on. What a great way to start a start a marriage, it's, and it's worked well. Oh. And you can hear just from that why you are the greatest soul band of all time. There's a feel that everybody, uh, up to and including the Beatles, wished they could emulate and tried to. Stones, animals, you can just hear these mm-hmm. all these groups trying to get that groove. Mm-hmm. That sound. And as mm-hmm. a kid from Greencastle, Indiana, you know, small white community, mm-hmm. and we even had a couple bands that tried their best to sound like you, mm-hmm. usually with a singer that tried to sound like James Brown. Mm-hmm. And this is happening all over America. You yeah. know, it, it seemed if you're going to play a dance, you're not going to play Simon and Garfunkel songs. You want people to move. And uh-huh. so you guys seem to be the bottom end of uh, the greatest dance music oh, ever you. made. And I, if this isn't too strange a question. I teach a history of rock and roll music course here. Course. And I, when I talk mm-hmm. about soul music, mm-hmm. uh, almost the second word out of my mouth is gospel. Yeah. And usually I mean vocals, you know, Ray Charles or, yeah. you know, Aretha or even Little Richard, somebody singing in a way that's not really a pop or R&B voice. Yeah. But you guys in these songs, 
you know, with no singing at all, mm-hmm. seemed to f- define soul music as a sound, an instrumental mm-hmm. sound that's mm-hmm. somehow different from blues or rhythm and blues. Is that, I mean, I know Green Onions is a 12-bar blues, but it doesn't sound like a blues to my ears. Is, mm-hmm. is that a distinction that makes any sense in your mind? Or Well, we were we were very close to the blues, but we... We had some undercurrents going on there in Memphis, uh, somewhere between Bill Street and Macklemore and East Memphis and um, Nashville and uh, Missouri, where Cropper was from. I'm not sure where Duck Dunn was from, but uh, Duck was one of the main uh, uh, distributors of uh, James Brown Records from Cincinnati. Uh, he was a clerk, and he worked as a, a stock boy. Uh, so he knew all that stuff. And Cropper was um, a disciple of the Five Royales. Uh, these undercurrents were not apparent, I don't think maybe even to us, but we were listening to uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and I was hearing uh, Hank Williams. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think, you know, uh, so much of what was going on with the blues and the fields of Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi between uh, the, uh, the, the the white music and the black music was um, somehow just blending there. And we might have been the vessel to blend this into rock and soul or, mm-hmm. or something. It might, it might have been us to bring it all together. It was definitely you. I wonder mm-hmm. if there's something in the water down there. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, there's Sun Records in the Sun era Records before mm-hmm. with... Mm-hmm. with Mm-hmm. So the great blues they did, mm-hmm. as well as Elvis and Jerry Lee and Carl Perkins. It's it's such a um, melting pot, it seems, of people listening to everybody. To, everybody's listening to each other and sort of taking ideas. And mm-hmm. but so I can hear as you played those, I could hear uh, rock elements. And but like you say, the basis was the, was the twelve bar blues, and that was the the restriction and constriction that was also at the same time liberating. Mm-hmm. And one thing that. Is so famous about you guys, but we should talk about it. Is you were an integrated group. I mean, mm-hmm. the g- world's greatest soul band, by definition, is of course a black band. Yeah, but you weren't in the Memphis Horns. Were, I mean, it, mm-hmm. I don't, was that a part? I, mean, I guess that had to be a part of it. Is, I don't it, think it could have been any other way, mm-hmm. because, like I said, the uh, the undercurrents were. Um, with the white man's blues that came through uh, Stephen Duck. Mm-hmm. That's uh, the guitar and bass players. Mm-hmm. And also the um, the desire to be a tight group. I was just noticing how closely we played together, how tight the rhythm is. And uh, I don't think I noticed it back then, but there was just a desire to make something that was so simple and so uh, accessible. And it seems as if the race issue was so unnoticeable to us. And I don't think we paid any attention to that really? at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just uh, uh, so focused and concentrated on the on the groove and the feeling. Now, was that true outside the doors of Stax? I mean, I assume you could not play a gig in town. No, or no, even... that wasn't true outside the doors. No, that that was the opposite outside. Once mm-hmm. we walked out on the street, then it was uh, it was a segregated world. Memphis was a segregated uh, city, uh, even down to the drinking fountains, the restaurants, and so forth. Uh, no, that wasn't true then. Yeah. No. And that was. Just the way it was, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, it was accepted. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to, uh, of course, the other famous thing about you is you're the house band at Stax, mm-hmm. meaning you play on 
the greatest soul records by the greatest soul singers of all time. But Thank before you. we get back to that, I, let's connect one more dot, if you would, for me. The road from Memphis to Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems a little counterintuitive. You have a hit record in high school, Green Onions, mm-hmm. and you go to college. What was your motivation for that, and how was it received by the people who probably were realizing you were a gold mine and didn't really want you walking out the door? Well, it had to do with my internal conflict. I was playing music that people were happy with in Memphis, but inside I knew that I uh, didn't have the ability to play so much more music that I could hear in my mind, and I didn't know how to um, write it down and how to translate it to the piano, the various instruments, and I knew I needed help. And I, I just know, knew that uh, I needed uh, instruction in certain areas that I couldn't get uh, in Memphis. And what kind of lessons did you take back to Memphis from Indiana? I ask that because mm-hmm. I, classical training is so strict. You know, you don't really play around with a beat when you're in an orchestra or marching band, and yet you guys were so known for being so loose and relaxed. I, I, exactly. But what I needed to do was to learn to express myself. I needed to get what was inside here out. And um, I needed to see how other people had done it. And I needed to uh, get the tools. And I I got so much of that here. I saw myself as such a complex person musically. And um, I loved blues. I loved gospel. I loved jazz. I loved so much classical music. My mother had played Chopin at home. She'd played uh, Debussy, mm-hmm. so I knew that there were areas that, that I just needed to expand in in order to be able to express myself fully. And then there was a practical side of it, writing down notes for horns, uh, saxophones, which were written in different keys. I needed mm-hmm. to understand that. I needed to, there were horns that were in F, and there were clefs that were on, they looked strange to me. I didn't understand <laughs> how it worked, and... Um, I needed to uh, be able to express the different tempo changes that I sometimes felt, and I just I just needed training. Now, when you say that, do you mean you needed to write it out? Or yes, yes, not only to help but, me remember it, but so other people could play parts that I couldn't play myself. But I assume Booker T and the MGs and the folks at Sax were not reading off music. No, no, but but. Whenever I uh, had an arrangement at Stacks and I, and I wanted to include strings or, mm. or sometimes uh, a horn section or, in some cases, uh, out-of-town players or we had a need to uh, get copyrights, there were um, many times the songs would have lyrics and I needed to um, make lead sheets. There, there were a lot of things that... Uh, were basically janitorial-type duties that a musician needed to do there. Well, we talked uh, earlier about, I mentioned that Paul McCartney said he didn't want to learn to read music mm-hmm. because he might get too self-conscious and the mm-hmm. magic might disappear, but mm-hmm. you seem to use these two different poles to strengthen each other rather than sort of cancel each other out. Mm-hmm. You, you I kept think... that loose, wonderful feel when you were in Memphis and you... Mm-hmm. Got through theory class and marching band here. Well, I think McCartney has a a good valid point because uh, every musician is different and people need to know themselves. They need to not get information that once they've gotten it, it's going to change them for the worse. So I think that was a, a smart thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for someone else, it could be the exact opposite. For me, 
it opened up a new world. Learning, knowing that I now have a have a, a blank palette, uh, it just it just opens up uh, extensive musical ideas for me. So, what were the the uh, logistics like? I mean, you're quite a ways from Memphis here. Were yeah. you bombing down there on the weekends and then to record and then back up? And- yeah, I was storming out of here. I was just thinking, walking down the street the other day, now which one of these roads did I take to get to 37 South? And uh, was I going to Paducah or Evansville? <laughs> it, was, it was because before uh, the flights were available, it was about an eight-hour drive. Yeah. So as soon as my last class was over on Friday, I would take off so I could do the Saturday morning session at Stax and the, and the Sunday session and then uh, get back uh, for Monday morning. It was. <laughs> I, I wish every student could hear that and <laughs> know what real dedication to education <laughs> is about. What about, I'm wondering about your life at IU uh, mm-hmm. back then, especially in the School of Music, which is fairly insular, or was back then, it classical was, music. Mm-hmm. Did, did your friends or people you were in class with know who you were, what songs you had done that you were famous Some of in? them did. Some of them did, and they, they really supported me. Uh, it was a much smaller school then. It was only one building. A number of people uh, knew my songs, and I actually uh, connected with some musicians here on, ca- on campus, uh, Arnie Frager and uh, Stan Hillis. We did some jam sessions around town, went and played some clubs in Indianapolis sometimes, and, and actually played my songs around here uh, for some of the fraternities on campus. Uh-huh. Did you run into any sort of elitist music school type ah, popular music I, snobbery? I mean, I, it, I believe they were unaware of what I was doing. Yeah, those types probably uh-huh. were. That's uh-huh. right. But I was very much accepted in the music school. It was a, it was a great community. Great. Mm-hmm. Good. Mm-hmm. What about, um, I hate to keep bringing up the issue of race, but mm-hmm. you mentioned in your speech that you checked into the hotel here. First mm-hmm. time you checked into a hotel and ate and rubbed shoulders with yes, we walked rich back. white people. And was that uh, as remarkable an experience as it sounded like? It was an incredible experience. Uh, I don't think we'd had driven the, the car that far before. My dad didn't have a a visa card at that yeah. time he had an SO gas credit yeah. card and I can remember paying you know 8 or 10 cents a gallon and uh, that was what he used for the credit and um but he was so supportive and um it's the way I got to spend the night before the jury mm-hmm. I think it was uh, August I had to come early to play the jury that was the first night in a hotel <laughs> and the first time eating in a hotel uh, dining room uh, uh-huh. You were very modest in your speech about not expecting to pass the jury, but uh, oh. they clearly saw your natural gifts on top of everything else. I know that Herman Wells, our legendary president, uh, uh-huh. did much to integrate Bloomington. I mean, make sure that mm-hmm. restaurants and you know everyone behaved well. But I, I also know there are still problems oh, in yes. that era. And Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. Did you run into much of that, or compared to Memphis, was it... Well, Memphis, I feel, was one of the most segregated cities in the South. And, of course, rural uh, Indiana was quite conservative. But the university has always tried to do the right thing, Mm -hmm. whether it went against its own soul at times. It persevered. So the doors were open, and that was the main thing. The doors were open, and there were smiles, and, and there was a good feeling here. And I felt comfortable enough to express myself and learn. Uh, I want to go back to some music, if we could. Sure. Uh, yeah. I don't want to uh, leave out your crucial role as mm-hmm. the house band, as I say, of uh, Stax Records, where uh-huh. you backed up so many people. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, your experience here 
helped you as sort of the de facto arranger, like for different singers and all the different people you would have to work with? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, before I came to Indiana, the only people that uh, Stax had available to write strings was Professor Noel Gilbert at Memphis State. That's who they had to call. There were some jazz arrangers in Memphis, uh, but I don't think they did any uh, arrangements for Stax. And what about the, even the basic band arrangements of... Otis is there, or Wilson Pickett or something. Is it mm-hmm. sort of a group effort to come up with a... Like, I get the impression that Motown, you get the writers in a cubicle writing the song, mm-hmm. and start with the song, and then you work mm-hmm. with the band. But I get mm-hmm. the impression in, in Stax it was built from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. There were cerebral arrangements there, down to the fact that Otis might have even hung, hummed a line to, to me or to the horn players. And, and, of course, we would discuss those musical parts in, in concert C., but, of course, I, if I hadn't had training, I wouldn't have known when I said uh, C to a tenor saxophone player, I was really saying B flat. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was all done by ear, as we called it, uh, head arrangements, we called it. Yeah. But there were times when the things had to be written down, and then that was my job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we hear a bit of your work as okay. the greatest house band of all time, too? This is a bit of uh, Booker T and the MGs behind various uh, artists and songs I'm sure everyone will recognize immediately. I've been loving you too long to stop now. Does it get better than that? Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, 
a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. You've worked with so many remarkable, legendary people. Are there people you think uh, stand out in your mind uh, that were particularly rewarding to work with? Or Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of funny. I was mentioning in my speech to the graduating class about becoming uh, familiar with the bottom and not being uh, too hardy to do the tasks that are associated with the bottom. And that makes me think of Otis Redding. And the day I met him, he was carrying uh, instruments and luggage in for the Johnny Jenkins band, and he was the driver. He had driven them up there from Georgia. And he asked if he could just maybe sing a little song. And they sat down next to me and started singing These Arms of Mine. And it seemed maybe within a 10 minutes, he went from being a, a chauffeur to a star. you know. And then he went back to being a chauffeur. <laughs> <laughs> he must have been a remarkable man to work with. I, I know you guys backed him up. Uh, you didn't play live all that much or no, tour, but no. you were at Monterey at the famous... Monterey yes, Pop if Festival. we did the one European tour and the Monterey Jazz mm-hmm. Festival, Monterey Pop Festival. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I have never read uh, an unkind word, or very few anyway, about Otis Redding. He seems like a gentle giant of a soul. And he was a gentle man. He, uh, he really was. Uh, he had physical strength, but he was a gentle person. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That must have uh, really taken the wind out of a lot of people, maybe stacks as a whole, when it, he tragically died in December 1967 and yeah, losing your flagship artist, isn't it? It, it did. He was um, he was a, definitely a central figure, mm-hmm. uh, in in some ways the heart of the company. Mm-hmm. And I guess since we're on grim topics, we can't not mention Martin Luther King. And no. that must have been just incredibly bitter and devastating to have him assassinated in your hometown. Uh, yes, and and the the spot where he uh, took the bullet was uh, a place where we frequented regularly because we had our meetings downstairs in the dining room because we didn't have a room big enough at Stacks to get everybody into. And we were there on a regular basis for our meetings. And Steve Cropper and uh, Eddie Floyd would uh, go into that room where they were. And oh, I'm sure they wrote some of the songs you just played right there in that room. Mm-hmm. So it was our second home. But you know how life just throws you these these big punches. But we really needed Dr. King to come to Memphis because the garbage men weren't making enough money to live on. And they just desperately needed help. Mm-hmm. And he was the only one that could help. Well, I've heard that when people like Jerry Wexler would come to town, or you know, that you could go to the Lorraine Motel if oh, you yeah. were white. Uh-huh. Yeah, he Whereas, would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. black artists couldn't just walk into... I don't know, the Peabody or somewhere and, and no. take a room. And exactly, so, yeah. Jerry Jerry got into trouble for bringing Carla Thomas there one night, I think. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. To, for, <laughs> yeah. Boy, unbelievable. The death of Otis Redding at the end of 1967 and then Martin Luther King in April 68 seems like when you read history marked also, or at least paralleled, the decline of stacks selling out mm-hmm. to Gulf and Western and Atlantic taking the songs and – Mm-hmm. It's almost like watching the Beatles implode with Apple and the mm-hmm. whole mess. And and I know that you uh, you started to move away from Stax as well. I wonder if you could talk I about did. that period. I started to move away emotionally and um, and business wise. You know, I had always 
at heart been something of a an uh, aspiring jazz musician, and Stocks was in no way a jazz label. But I had so much respect for Jimmy Smith and Jack McDuff and uh, those organists, and they 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 inspired me, and uh, I, I emulated them. And there was no way I was ever going to play any of that type of music there at Stacks. And as quiet it was kept, I loved a lot of other types of music, too, that I mm-hmm. couldn't do. I loved, I, I was moved by Hank Williams and uh, Kitty Wells. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I felt like I understood uh, the sentiments in country music. And... Um, so you know, and when you were when, working with film already too. I think uh, "Time yes. Is Tight" was for a film score. And, yes, and, classical music mm-hmm. uh, moved me. Uh, when I heard John Sibelius here at Indiana, I just uh, I wanted to get into uh, into that spot myself, where I could write uh, moving music for the orchestra. The mm-hmm. sound of the orchestra still moves me, and as it does millions of others, it's mm-hmm. just something that that you want to do. It's just attractive. Um, I couldn't do that there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I got to do that in Los Angeles. So it just seemed natural for me to migrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did. Once the business became corporate and I saw that it was corporate and it was going to always be corporate, uh, it was easy for me to get on a plane and leave. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of other kinds of music, let's play a couple other things a little bit of um this is a song that a lot of people know because Cream did it, and actually Jimi Hendrix did it too, and mm-hmm. it's a good old straight blues, and yet it's uh, you co-wrote it and mm-hmm. played on it. And, mm-hmm. uh, Born Under a Bad Sign, classic blues. I, that uh, was actually. I remember when I learned that you had done that. I was shocked. Uh, well, you know, Glenn, I'll talk to you about it. You're a music professor. How many other blues songs are you going to find in C sharp minor? <laughs> so it I has a certain by a keyboard player. Uh-huh, it, and and I had I had heard Wagner by that time, mm-hmm. and I played trombone in the in the concert band, and I had I had learned the power of the of the minor keys. I had learned the power of F sharp minor and C sharp minor as opposed to just C or or F. And um, that's how Born Under a Bad Sign got in that key. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great blues, but stretched. The palette is stretched, almost like mm-hmm. WC does the blues or something. In, yeah, in there's an way. urgency. There's an urgency. Yeah. yeah, it's a fabulous song. And one other from, uh, as we leave the MG's era, um, you did a, an album-length, uh, what's the word? Not homage, but your take on Abbey Road and the cover mm-hmm. is you crossing Macklemore Avenue the way the Beatles were crossing Abbey Road. Yeah. And I'd like to hear a little bit of I Want You uh, 
She's So Heavy, because that's actually the Beatles copying you with Billy Preston on the organ and oh, that really? kind of jazzy soul groove they try to go into. So it's a nice, nice turnabout. So cool. As I say, oh, everyone you. up to and including the Beatles wanted to be Booker T and the MGs. <laughs> I didn't know if that. they could be. And I think, uh, you know, you're everybody's dream band and everybody dreams of having your sound behind them. It can't be an accident that uh, you're the house band at the White House a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And by the way, uh, the Red, White, and Blues celebration. By the way, I love the moment when Mick Jagger runs right by the president to shake your hand. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and Michelle Obama uh, <laughs> wanting to be escorted with green onions. You know, yes, that's, that yeah. shows how deeply you have penetrated our cult consciousness. And also I'm thinking of, oh, gosh, so many times the Hall of Fame opening uh, ceremonies. I think you were the, mm-hmm. the house band leader mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. – when Columbia Records celebrated 30 years of Bob Dylan, there you were. I, yeah, it so. must take a special kind of type of not just talent but temperament to, especially something like the Dylan Fest, where you've got the biggest egos and biggest stars on earth. Mm. You must have to be uh, well, really so. sure of yourself and centered and not intimidated and yet also humble. And uh, you must have a just the right mix somehow. And you seem well, we to have had developed an ability to compliment. Uh, artists, different kinds of artists, to complement and accompany. And that's, I think, why we got in those situations. Did, mm-hmm. In situations like that, did you have to like cram the Dylan songbook and study, or, or, or could you just... Oh, that was an intense... That was seven days of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. That was his, his catalog was so huge by that point. And that was 20, 30 years ago, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. His catalog was so big, and people had so many songs to choose from, that we actually had to rehearse for a full week for that show. Wow. But I'm sure everyone was more thrilled to be playing with you <laughs> oh, yeah, than yeah. anyone else, except perhaps mm-hmm. Bob Dylan, you know, up <laughs> yeah. there. But mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, that's just fabulous that people, you know, who would you dream of backing you up? Uh, well, of course, mm-hmm. you know, Eric, Eric Clapton, Crossroads Festival. Mm-hmm. And, Thank you. You know, mm-hmm. you just have, I've seen you in so many spots. You were with LeVon Helm, who we just lost mm-hmm. recently. Mm-hmm. And, and um, mm-hmm. but again, I assume that's a talent that IU must have helped contribute to the ability to work with different sizes and different groups and different levels of musicians. Oh, absolutely. I was I was prepared by the time I left here and actually by that my by my sophomore year I had I had tools to to sustain me in the music business in a lot of different areas. I went to Hollywood by that time and worked with with scores and I was ready. Well, you and you became a, a producer as well. Uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't know either of these. So I'd like to play uh, again a quick bit of songs you you produced uh, that were massive hits for others, uh, but your fingerprints are all all over them in the best way. Mm-hmm. 
Ain't no sunshine when she's gone It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And she's always gone too long Anytime she goes away I wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gone to stay Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away What a great, famous song. What a thing to be a, a part of. And probably even more surprising and wonderfully appropriate for us here in Bloomington is this, this next one yeah. uh, that you... Uh, produced Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely nights dreaming of a song Melody haunts my reverie, and I am once again with you. When our love was new, and each kiss an inspiration. But that was long ago. And now my consolation is in... Willie Nelson, the classic Stardust song and album, and of course, Hoagie Carmichael, who was mm-hmm. from Bloomington, wrote that, and yeah. George On My Mind is on that, and uh-huh. that must have taken people by surprise. Uh, although you say you listened to Hank Williams and you loved country music, and I know people were surprised that Willie Nelson was doing that also from his uh-huh. direction. It's like you two meet in the middle... Well, that particular cut and that particular song is especially significant to me because that was the melody that brought my attention to Bloomington. When I was in the clubs playing that song as a boy, ninth, 10th, 11th grade, get many requests for that song. And, of course, I saw the name Hoagie Carmichael there. And when I researched him, I found that he had studied here at Indiana University. And that put this place on the map for me. That became my destination and my goal. It's just especially significant um, to have done that with uh, Willie Nelson. Uh, those two songs, as a matter of fact, Georgia on my mind, uh, because they were Hoagie's songs. Mm-hmm. And how did that? Uh, how does one just start working with Willie Nelson? Were you? I had rented an apartment in uh, Malibu on the beach, and uh, unbeknownst to me, the downstairs apartment uh, was uh, Willie Nelson's apartment. And uh, was standing out on the deck one day, just getting some air, and I saw this. <laughs> what kind of air do you get from Willie Nelson's apartment? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, with the uh, Washington Ocean, and Willie Willie was running. He was jogging at the time, jogging down the beach. And I thought that looks like Willie Nelson running down the beach, and it was Willie Nelson. And he waved, and you know, kind of a you know, just a little meeting there. And I didn't think I'd ever see him again. And and then uh, he there he came up the steps and. When in this place, he lives there. That's <laughs> so, fabulous. So we started uh, 
talking and hanging out and playing music. So, oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I don't want to neglect some of your other talents. I mean, I wish I could play you playing every instrument you play. And you also mm-hmm. sing quite a bit and quite well. Um, Thank Going you. back to that Bob Fest, the Bob Dylan celebration, um, mm-hmm. there's a song that you sang, uh, Serve Somebody, Dylan's song. Gotta serve somebody. And uh, it'd be nice to hear a bit of, of that. Well, now you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble, and you may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world Or you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls You're gonna have to save somebody Is that a song that you picked out to do, or did you? Yes, uh, the uh, the lyrics to that song are amazing, so so true, and um, it, it actually fits in with my theme for this week, and that is, you know, you gotta you gotta be at the bottom if you're gonna rise to the top. Yeah. <laughs> well, humility and keeping yourself in perspective seem to be important to you, and and mm-hmm. what so many people love about you, probably why they. Mm. want you around yeah, uh, you. Mm-hmm. and yes you're you're in fact we have a a clip from your commencement address uh, that exactly that part and i i thought it was so moving i was actually uh in tears and i'm oh, sure really? a lot of the students mm-hmm. and their parents were as well it's a mm. be- beautifully done like uh like your wife nan said it's it's like a song and oh thank you, you. Can hear about a minute of that or so now to stay at the top of any field is to understand the nature of what lies at the bottom My advice is, if you want to be comfortable at the top, get familiar with the bottom. If you are a conductor, know where the third trombone has to turn the page. If you are a general, be able to break down the corporal's weapon with your eyes closed. If you are a philosopher, be able to empty your own mind. If you want to rise to the top, Stay close to the bottom. To be truly healthy, you must manage your sickness. To become truly wealthy, you must give to the poor. To become truly wise, you must learn to know nothing. These I offer you today. I will tell you that you have great powers powers that you have acquired here in the halls of Indiana University. I will urge you to use those powers to elevate those who are beneath you in society. I have survived because I learned how to learn, and I did that here at Indiana. It's real good for us to hear here in Indiana, Mm. and beautiful words. Thank you. And I I sense a theme of uh, an undercurrent of your entire career has been not just the music, but the message, a, a positive message. Uh, and 
I sense that you view your life as an example. I mean, I certainly look at you as one that that, that someone who's you know kept their head straight, their goals straight, and and worked for them without getting, uh, as you say, too far from mm-hmm. your your beginnings. And well, I'm very fortunate to to uh, get to voice my ideas to uh, a distinguished class from a school like this today. It's, it's a great opportunity for me. Mm-hmm. Well, it's. Commencement speeches are supposed to be inspiring and and life lessons, and you you nailed it. Thank you. uh, How do you feel about – I was just going to say I don't want to belabor your old things, but Mm -hmm. I I wonder how it feels to know that you you will always be Booker T of Booker T and the MGs Mm -hmm. plus the other things you've done. Mm -hmm. I mean that must be a great feeling to know you will be remembered forever even if – well, Glenn, I feel fortunate on a number of fronts. Uh, fortunate that I got to make music all this time. That was I really, really wanted to do that when I was young. I really, really wanted to spend my life making music, and I've had to, I've, I've had a chance to do that. And I uh, was able to make my living doing it. And uh, I just um, feel lucky that I lived so close to a recording studio at a time in my life when, when. Uh, it was a launching pad for me. Mm-hmm. And then on the other front, I got to be in rooms with people who were making great music, and I was just lucky to be there mm-hmm. so, so many times. Yeah. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I had a great time listening back to so many of those songs that you played earlier, Green Onions, Born Under a Bad Sign. That was just a, an exhilarating feeling to be involved in doing that. It was just amazing. So 100 years from now... If- you're still best known for Green Onions. That's okay with you? I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, yeah. I I love that song. It it, it turned out great, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many people created something truly timeless? And I uh, personally love listening to it just as a listener. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, one, I would be really remiss if I didn't mention that your four Grammys one of them a lifetime award, but mm-hmm. the most two recent, the two most recent ones were for your two most recent records. So mm-hmm. we're not talking about a career that's over and by any means. Mm-hmm. You know, to win two Grammys in a row must be a great, great feeling. Yes, it was a stamp of validation uh, that meant a lot to me from people who do what I do, who know uh, how hard it can be and also how, uh, how much fun it can be. And for them to vote for me just uh, meant so much to me. Well, I'd like to play one from uh, Potato Hole from 2009 mm-hmm. that features the drive-by truckers and Neil Young, who mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. you played on his Are You Passionate album mm-hmm. and toured with him extensively. Mm-hmm. I assume you got along well. I know mm-hmm. he adores you and, and yeah. wanted to it's play. Yeah, a great songwriter and great friend. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you guys did a very nice Dock of the Bay uh, live that I, mm-hmm. that I heard. Uh, but he plays on this record called uh, Warped Sister. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, here's a little more recent Booker T. Jones from uh, 
unmistakable still. Great. Mm. You know, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is. I, I, not just me, but the whole IU music community has been dreaming of having you here, honoring you appropriately, and, and showing our gratitude for you uh, speaking so highly of Indiana through your whole career. It's that's. Oh, thank you. Didn't you. forget us, you know, and we appreciate oh, that. Thank and, you. It's it's definitely been one of the greatest weeks of my life. Uh, yeah. That's that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. And I, I hope you'll come back, I, I, and we'll plan something very special around that. I will. That, that, I will. That would be terrific. But, thank you. Well, for now, uh, this is Glenn Gass, and uh, we've been speaking with the legendary Booker T. Jones, and uh, mm-hmm. I want to thank you for being with us and listening to profiles and uh, to. Take us out. Why don't we hear a song from uh, your latest album, another Grammy Award winning album from 2011, The Road from Memphis, which actually makes a nice circle. This uh, Walking Papers goes back to a tune from the Stax days. So we'll complete the circle with that, if that's all right with you. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. just heard was recorded in May of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.